Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Sally Holloway, where I ask her, what was it like to get loved up in Georgian England? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have got such a gorgeous, scintillating, sexy history episode for you with none other than Dr. Sally Holloway, who is a historian of gender, emotions, and visual and material culture in Britain over the long 18th and 19th centuries. She is the author of the book, The Game of Love in Georgian England. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sally Holloway. How are you? Thank you. What an introduction. I I wish I could be introduced like that every time I do uh, any sort of public event. (laughs) Oh oh my gosh. I am totally, you know, around for announcement jobs. So let your people contact my people and we'll get it all sorted out. So here's the thing. As minding my own business, watching Bridgerton completely obsessed along with the rest of the entire universe last Christmas holiday. Now the new season is upon us and I am candidly kind of a slut. And I just cannot imagine having all these rules and all of these like hierarchies around dating and like not being allowed to be a slut and needing to be like a covert slut. Um, so I just have a lot of questions about what dating was like in Georgian England. And then we heard about you and we were like, oh my God, you're the perfect person to tell us about it. I'm sorry. I said slut three times already to like a British, like a doctor. And it's like, you know, barely even 11 in the morning, but yes, I know that you can answer these things for us. So what we're looking at, broadly speaking, is the Georgian era. It's running from the coronation of George I in 1714, right through uh, to the death of George IV in 1830. And so Bridgerton is sort of at the tail end of that period. It's what we call the Regency era. Uh, And it's a time of massive social, political, economic, cultural change, Uh, you know, not least when it came to matters of of, uh, sex and sexual morality and love and, and marriage. Oh, darling Sally. Can you please say those years again? I was so transfixed with your accent. I could barely concentrate. <laughs> so um, what, and also I must, I also must confess, why do we call it the long 18th and 19th centuries? Were they like longer than other centuries? Like, was there more leap years that century or something? Like, why is it long? Like that's a really good question. It's just a way of, of studying social change for historians. So it's not like everybody goes to bed on the last day of 1699 and they wake up in 1700 and suddenly everything is different. They're in the 18th century. Life as we know it is completely changed. Well, then those people obviously didn't live through Y2K because we do know <laughs> that everything on, you know, it it, it is a completely different. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. So that's so interesting. So could you be someone who studies like a long century of any century? Because that really just means like the time leading into it and that century and then like the time leading out of it. Is that what that means? Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's just um, how do we study historical periods as historians that are actually meaningful in some way? So you can study the short 18th century if you want to. But I mean, the general consensus is that uh, it's part of this longer period of social and cultural change. You know, you take a little bit of the 17th century from about 1688 and then a little bit of the of the 19th century till about 1830. So that is sort of a meaningful block for historians. So, I mean, you know, if we're thinking the Georgians, that's from 1714 to 1830. Well, is social change actually coinciding with when monarchs were crowned or not? You know, where where do you start and end when you're studying culture? Oh my God, that's so fascinating. Okay, and then when we're talking about the Regency, those like years that you were saying before. So the Regency uh, is a period where uh, the Prince Regent, so the future George IV, is uh, reigning uh, sort of on behalf of George III because he'd been declared unfit to rule. And so it's a discrete period from, from 1811 to 1820. But culturally, you might describe a sort of Regency era, which is what Bridgerton is in. Oh, so the Regency is just like a little part of the Georgian era. Yeah, it's the end. It's the end bit. 
So, and then, and so George III, that was the guy who like, he's like in Hamilton too, right? Isn't that that guy? He's in Hamilton, yeah. And so then he loses and then him and that cute queen from Bridgerton, their son was ruling on his behalf for like nine years. So yeah, the future George IV was reigning as regent uh, while George III was uh, unfit to rule. He was incapacitated. Who ruled him unfit? The Supreme Court of England or something? <laughs> So when we think about Georgian era in England, uh, what are some of like the defining features? Like what's happening in literature, um, the arts, philosophy? Like what's the tea going like uh, in those areas? Okay, what's the tea? A synopsis. So industrialization urbanization so people are moving from rural areas to live in towns and cities uh, more towns and cities are getting much bigger and that's really important for how people uh, conducted courtship and marriage because it meant that you were meeting a much wider range of people there were all these new commercial venues for urban leisure springing up where you could visit and you might meet a potential romantic partner. So places like uh, Pleasure Gardens, you know, in Bridgerton, they all go to Vauxhall, right, to yes. watch the fireworks. Uh, so you'd go to so Pleasure Gardens, you know, you'd eat and drink and listen to music and see and be seen and, and meet potential suitors. You might go to all these new commercial venues, places like assembly rooms, balls, masquerades, all these sort of new urban commercial uh, venues. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I have a question, I have a question, I have a question. Okay. Was there, like, a woman are from Mars, men are from Venus of the era? Like, was there, like, some, like, dating rule book or something of the time? Like, was there any, like, books about dating? I suppose if you were going to think of a, a, a sort of manual, it would be the novel. So the the period saw a boom uh, of what we call print culture. So more people could read, more people could write, and there were all these new forms of print that people were engaging with. So uh, you had daily newspapers, uh, you had magazines, pamphlets, political tracts, uh, gossip rags, like... Um, you know, Lady Whistledown's society papers. So you had sort of trashy things that people would read, highbrow things that people were reading. Uh, and then the novel was the most important sort of a guidebook of really how, what you might hope to find in marriage. Uh, so n the novel emerged in the sort of form that we would understand it today. And some novels became massive bestsellers. Uh, and, you know, young people engaging in courtship are reading these stories and Actually, they were really important in raising people's expectations and, you know, rhapsodizing about the, the brilliance of, of finding true love. You know, having your virtue rewarded uh, by finding uh, a brilliant husband and companion that you would love forever. So the novel was really important. I'm obsessed. I can't get enough. OK, wait. So then at this time, America's kind of happening, like over on the other side, you know, and then like they <laughs> fucking like rebel in the middle of this like era. So religious practices, because like the United States was founded so much on, you know, in the day on this idea of like religious freedom. So what were people from England like running from? Like what were the religious practices and views that were dominant in like the 18th century? So society on the whole is getting a bit more secular. So people uh, are getting their information, like I said, from this um, enormous booming new print culture. So you could get your ideas about marriage and sex and sexual morality from pamphlets and magazines and newspapers and novels, as well as the teachings of the church. But it's still a Christian society. So people's beliefs about the purpose of marriage and why they should get married and what marriage was for was still very much influenced by the teachings of the church. So the church held that um, marriage was the proper site for sex, for procreation uh, and for long-term companionship. So marriage was still very much the building block of society and that idea had a, you know, a, a religious foundation. Um, so people's ideas about sort of philosophy behind marriage were shaped by religion and also in a practical sense because you know everyone's going to church on Sundays and the church was a good venue for meeting a potential spouse so uh, you might walk to the church uh, with someone that you were interested in you might sit in a pew nearby uh, and then make plans you know to have tea with them and their families after uh, so the church was important both uh, sort of philosophically and morally but also in a practical sense because it was a, a meeting place between people in a community. 
So, and because this is taking over like such a large time from like the 1680s to the 1830s. And I would imagine that as you get into like, you know, way before this with like the 1400s and 1500s, like, and you know, even earlier, it's like harder to document because there's probably like less surviving material around like courtship and love and stuff. But like, what was the um, evolution of marriage just within like the Georgian era, like from, you know, 1680s, like, does it become more solidified? Does issues of like, um, like society become more important, like, you know, marrying up or like, you know, not marrying someone who's like not from like the same like social circles as you like giving uh, kind of not to switch, you know, continents of giving like the Gilded Age vibes like, oh, it's not the right society, but whatever, like, you know that accent was in America in the 1800s, you know. Well, the really, really important ideal was marrying for love. Uh, So everybody sort of in the Georgian era, they were influenced by this enormously important ideal of marrying for love. Because what was it before that? So marriage was always associated with love in some way. But what was so different in the Georgian era was there was this sort of insistence on uh, love before marriage. It couldn't just be something that developed later. Uh, So writers like Rousseau were arguing that having love before marriage was the law of nature. It was was enormously important. uh, And there was this sort of celebration, idealization, valorization, you know, love in marriage became this hugely celebrated goal. It took on a brand new cultural importance, a cultural weight that hadn't been there before. And so the novel, novels like Samuel Richardson's Pamela, uh, they presented this idealized uh, view of it, it, the full title was Pamela or Virtue Rewarded. And so Pamela, the heroine, uh, she fends off uh, all of her master, Mr. B's attempts at seduction. Uh, and then it, at the end, she's protected her virtue and she's rewarded by a loving companion at marriage. So having love in your marriage was a, as an enormously important goal that was propagated through novels. So basically, novels were kind of like the long form Twitter of 18th century and love was trending. Like marrying for love was really, really, really trending. It was really, really, really trending. Yeah. and it, But in different, in all different genres as well. So that's in the novel. But also love was really important in philosophy. Love in this period is not just a sort of fluffy ideal. Um, it's also bound up in hierarchies of power. So men talked endlessly about the strength of their feeling. Uh, You know, it was men who had access to the language of love. There are enormous hierarchies involved here at every single stage. So women had to remain chaste and modest and virtuous, uh, whereas it was men who wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote at enormous length about the strength of their love. And also um, enormous hierarchies of, of race, um, and of and of what country you were from. So Europeans were arguing that because they were marrying for love, that was a sign that they were a polished nation. It was a sign that they were a civilized society. So they're using love as a philosophy to separate themselves from everybody else. They're saying we're marrying for love. It shows we're civilized people. We're people of feeling. Um, whereas uh, you know other nations where men and women might be a bit more indifferent to one another uh, after marriage that is a sign uh, of barbarism and savagery so love you know was as an important ideal philosophically uh, as well in how they sort of um, exercise power how men exercise power over women and Europeans exercise power over everybody else and how cocky to think that other cultures weren't marrying for love also like or that that was like an idea that was like exclusive to this like school of thought. So women must remain. I never know how to pronounce that. Is it you? But you said cha- chast, chaste, 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 chaste. She said, I never know. In my head, I always get to that. It's like how I pronounce like serious black, serious black until I saw the movies, you know, I, I never knew how to pronounce it. <laughs> but that's like not being able to read versus not knowing how to sound something out. So defending their virtue, is that like defending their virginity, like only ever sleeping with one person? Was there like a really heavy emphasis on that? 
Yeah, enormously. Uh, so there was a, a very clear sexual double standard. So, you know, the 18th century is generally understood by historians as, as the first great sexual revolution. So sex was um, increasingly understood as something enjoyable and pleasurable. It was something natural. But there are clear hierarchies in that because uh, it's men who are, you know, going around and sleeping with prostitutes and so on. Uh, but for women, you know, their virtue was absolutely everything. I mean, you didn't want to be courting someone for too long before marriage because you might find that your virtue was compromised in the meantime and it, and it might ruin the match for you. So for women, uh, you know, virtue was everything. And, and, you know, you see that in Bridgerton as well, uh, you know, the importance of um, resisting the danger of seduction. And so does that mean that, like, if you courted for too long and you did it, the guy might be like, oh, she didn't have virtues so now I can't be with her and then would she get like a scarlet letter and then he wouldn't and then he could just move on and it was fine but maybe he was the, like the guy who instigated it and the lady was like no I don't even really want to but okay fine I'll S your D and then he was like Slot! and then she didn't even get to go like as anyone else's D uh, I mean so what's interesting is that we know that uh, the population was growing enormously during this century. So more people were having more sex. They were having procreative, penetrative sex. The population is growing. So actually, in the later stages of courtship, sort of ordinary women, once they felt secure, once a man had announced himself, he proposed, you considered yourself engaged to be married, a lot of people were having sex in the later stages of courtship. Um, and we know that because uh, up to a, as many as a third of brides were actually pregnant on their wedding day. I'll show you, actually, I have a really interesting print, which I'll show you. I'll share my screen. So this is a print. It's called uh, The Unwilling Bridegroom or Forced Meat Will Never Digest. Can you see that? Yes. And it shows, uh, so she's pregnant uh, and the groom is being shoved up the aisle by an usher being like, well, you've impregnated her. Now you've got to marry her. You know, you, you can't have men, uh, you know, impregnating women and then and then leaving their illegitimate children, uh, you know, the responsibility of the parish, you know. So that's what it says. Force meat will never digest. You know, now now they've had sex. You know, now now she's pregnant. It's his responsibility uh, to look after her, whether he wants to or not. And ultimately, what we probably know is that people have always been doing it regardless. So it's like, how do you, how did they get away with it? How did they like, you know, work with the consequences of, you know, what was going on, which is so, yeah. that's so much to, to kind of handle. Um, so if, and some of that is like, you know, some of the consequences is like we're talking about like babies. So what, like, what could they do to prevent having babies uh, like what contraception is available in like the eight like 1700s and 1800s well i'll show you so these on your screen now can you see that these Dang. are 18th century condoms okay Talk so sustainable reusable they're still I, intact i know I know, reuse and recycle, right? So uh, so these are 18th century condoms. They were reusable. Uh, and so men would tie them on at the base with a ribbon. And then you'd use it, empty it, wash it, and then just go use it again. You know, it was reusable. Uh, and we know that men used them. Uh, they described it um, as their armour to protect their machine. Armour to protect their... I wonder how effective they were. I mean, not very effective, I don't think. Right? Uh, <laughs> like, was there anything else that they could do? Uh, withdrawal. Oh, yeah, that method. Wow. Um, yeah. That old chestnut, as my husband would say. <laughs> Okay, so because love is so important in this time... Oh, my God. And also, I just got... What about gay stuff? I mean, I can't... What about gay sex? What do we know about gay sex in the time? Is there any like hot gay stories? So, um, 
so a lot of historians argue that the new sort of sexual freedom of the 18th century it extended to some extent to gay couples. Was there gay couples? Yeah, 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 there were loads yeah. of gay couples. But no, I mean, I wouldn't say out in that way. You know, being gay wasn't um, an identity category in the way that it is now. Right. Uh, it was more about uh, you know, behavior. But people kind of knew, like, on the hut, like, they were like, oh, like, those people living on that corner street house together, like, they're probably, you know, that aren't married. Like, there were some, like, people who were assumed to be in queer couples at the time. Yeah. So uh, what's interesting is that we know um, about, you know, some romantic relationships, say, between two women. And interestingly, uh, they sort of navigated their relationships using a lot of the same rituals that the straight couples were using. Uh, So they sort of appropriated these rituals from the church, rituals of marrying and and applied them to their own relationships, even though that didn't give them any sort of legal basis. Um, So we know uh, of uh, some uh, couples of women uh, who uh, one of the women would buy the other uh, a ring and they'd turn it on one of the, their fingers and make a pledge, you know, to be together forever, uh, you know, even if it wasn't in front of the church. And they'd still, uh, you know, refer to one another, you know, as a help meet. Um, you know, they, they did have long-term partnerships, um, but it wasn't uh, open and public in the same way, obviously, and it wasn't... Um, recognized by the church of course you know there there had to be much greater secrecy and um much greater care involved but we but we do have some evidence of women especially conducting these romantic partnerships and, and engaging in these same sorts of rituals and you know for men as well there was there was a thriving gay subculture in 18th century london so men could go to um these places called molly houses uh, that were in uh, taverns or private rooms uh, and they would have these ceremonies called marrying ceremonies uh, where they would dress in drag uh, and then have a sort of mock marrying ceremony like sending up the customs of the church before having sex um, so you would you can say to some extent yeah there is you know the freer sexual license for this thriving urban gay subculture but also there was a you know big police crackdown on molly houses during the same period oh yeah tell me what happen yeah the most famous one is it's mother claps molly house um but there were there were raids on it you know in the 18th century and mother clap was you know put in the pillory what's the pillory when you're sort of uh publicly shamed in front of the whole community okay so because love is such a you know confounding thing how did people understand love at the time like was it all defined as like a religious-based love, or were there... Obviously, we're just talking about queer loves that were defined outside of a religious sense, but, you know, mirrored it in certain ways, made it their own. Um, But how was love defined at this time? So love was understood as uh, a long-lasting, powerful passion of the soul. So people thought love was so formidable in its power, you know, it was almost impossible to capture in words. Um, And it was definitely shaped by religious maxims, like I said. It was shaped by uh, couples in the Bible, like Adam and Eve and uh, Rebecca and Isaac and Ruth and Boaz. One of the men I studied in my book, he described love as an inexpressible power that moves all the faculties of the soul it's a celestial spark the finishing stroke of heaven the polish of existence so it has an almost sort of religious importance love in this era ah and then what about like the physical understandings like was sex so closely associated with love here too yes so, so you know, the church held that marriage was the proper site of sex, procreation and, and long-term companionship. Uh, and the absolute pinnacle of married love was, was to produce children. Um, but I mean, love itself, you know, you even before having sex, you showed you were in love with another person uh, through all these different physical symptoms, okay? So you showed you were in love uh, through the body. So a person in love was someone who was sighing, blushing, swooning. You know in Bridgerton, Cressida Cowper uh, swoons. uh, Yeah. Yeah, so you see the swoon is a powerful um, sort of act for women showing their sensitivity, their their capacity for feeling. So they're sort of swooning and dreaming of loved ones and sighing. But it wasn't enough to just do it on your own. You know, you had to communicate that with whoever you were dating. So people would write letters saying... 
oh, you know, I'm, I'm sighing. I'm, I know, just doing, a, you know, doing their sigh in writing. It's a sort of sign that they were in love. You know, it's like, I've got the physical symptoms. You, you're displaying them through the body to show people know that, that you're in love. Oh, I love that. How does like courtly love in this era in the 1700s apply across classes? Like if you were seen as someone who like had less resources, if you didn't have, if your family didn't come from, you know, money or the aristocracy, were you kind of like more allowed to be a slut or like more allowed to be more like, excuse me, not a slut, but were you allowed to like be more free and not like, you know, restrained to those rules so much as people that were like in the upper classes or like royal society? Yeah, I mean, as always, uh, you know, it was a really good time to be a, a rich, straight, white man. So the rules really, you know, you had so much freer sexual license if you were a member of the aristocracy. If you were enormously wealthy, uh, you you had much greater freedom to do, to do what you wanted. Oh, I thought um, maybe if you, like, didn't have all those people watching you... What if you wanted to be, or what if you were, like, gay? Was it better if you were, like, not in the aristocracy so you could kind of just, like, go, like, find, like, your perfect, like, boyfriend and then you guys could just, like, go save up for, like, a farmhouse somewhere? No, uh, people people had much greater sexual freedom uh, if they were members of nobility. Interest. So, okay, so then at the beginning of this era, what did romantic love look like? Uh... Like, how was the beginning of the 1700s kind of different from the beginning of the 1800s? So at the beginning of the 18th century, the most influential uh, model for expressing romantic love was courtly love. Uh, And so uh, under the culture of courtly love, a man would present himself as a sort of like a knight. It's also known as heroic love. He's sort of a suffering, dashing knight who is pained uh, by trying to win the hand of a fair lady. I can read you, actually. I have a letter here. I'll show you. Uh, Can you see that? I still only see condoms. (laughs) I just see varying sizes of of 1700s condoms. I've had these condoms on my screen for like the last 20 minutes. So what I've got here is this is a real love letter that was written from a man to a woman in uh, 1714. And so this is the language of courtly love. So he says, but sure, my charming conquest cannot be so cruel. Were she but sensible, what an unusual disorder she had occasioned. So that's love, an unusual disorder. Uh, Sure, she would have some tender thoughts to allay it. I languish by an intolerable and yet pleasing wound. So that's love. Love is the intolerable and yet pleasing wound. It's something that, that's wounded him that he's suffering from. So that that is the culture of courtly love. He has great handwriting. Yes, yeah, it's very uh, flowery. And you can see his sign- signature as well at the bottom. It's all sort of swirly. Yeah, he's really, like, no typos. He must have really had to be, like, you know... Uh, intentional. What about like being able to like marry for love outside of your social class? Like, what if there was someone who was from like the aristocracy, like a man who fell in love with like a woman who was, I don't know, like someone who worked within the house or some someone who was like a lady's maid? Or was that ever allowed? Was that seen as like a cool thing if like a woman was able to like move up socially, or was that just completely impossible? It wasn't impossible, but it was def- it definitely wasn't a cool thing. So um, what I think one historian described it really well. She described it as a sort of willing drift into a suitable alliance. You only met sort of broadly so- suitable people. Uh, so you were sort of shepherded through social events as a courting man or woman. So all the different people you were meeting were sort of broadly suitable. And so people are marrying people from their own social bracket. So gentlemen, are marrying gentlemen's daughters manufacturers are marrying manufacturers daughters you know you you don't typically have massive class disparities uh, in the making of marriages you know people are people are marrying within their lane very much because there just wasn't even a place for social interaction between them because they were you were either going to like nice ass masquerades at like big nice places or like more like taverny like local places that just depend on like what your family did for a living yeah, I mean, it's the sort of 
the same as today, really. I mean, you don't get, you know, enormous examples where everybody who's super rich is marrying people who are super poor because, you know, you're not moving in the same social circles. So people are generally expecting to marry someone of a similar social class. And, you know, you might think, oh, today we live all completely outside of all of those rules. But if you actually look at most people's relationships, you're, you're typically sort of following your own class, broadly speaking. Although, you know, some very, very, very wealthy men did you know did marry their you know their servants but i mean it definitely wasn't the norm and then how does that start to shift as we approach the 1800s like what starts to change the key shift here is the culture of sensibility so it's enormously important in shaping how people approach their romantic relationships um and it was a, a movement across uh, sort of culture and philosophy and art and music and literature um so to be a person of sensibility you were in touch with your feelings it was to be a man of feeling or a woman of feeling to be in touch with your emotions to be someone who was sensitive uh, who could display their feelings through you know blushing and sighing and so on i can show you actually i have a great print can you see can you see this yes so this is this is a, a picture of two lovers sort of influenced by sensibility so you can see they're crying because they're so emotional they've got so many feelings and they're showing them through weeping so it's a picture of a man and a woman they're both holding massive oversized handkerchiefs to their eyes they're dabbing their eyes it's called sympathetic lovers it says the sorrows of verta i've read so that's a that was a really important uh, best-selling novel he says miss suki believe what i say i'll never get him out of my head i've cried like a child all day so it's this emotional excess this sort of over-the-top uh, feeling. And she says, Oh, Tommy, you know, my poor heart is by sympathy rendered so fine. His name does such feelings impart. I must mingle my sorrows with thine. They're crying, they're weeping, they're so sensitive, they're so emotional. And so they're showing in a theatrical, over-the-top way, because it's a satire, it's showing that they're, they're people of feeling. Uh, and therefore, they're in touch with their feelings, they're emotional, they're virtuous uh, and morally upright, sensitive individuals. And what kind of ushers in this, like, more and more over-the-top, like, must-find love? We've mentioned it a little bit before, but I know there's, like, more there. There's more people are, like, learning to read. Is that why it's becoming, like, because people are really wanting it because it's, like, going viral. It's, like, the whole trending thing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a really popular social movement. So yeah, more people can read, more people can write. If you couldn't read or write, you know, you could go to a scribe and pay them and they would write a letter for you in this style. So even if you couldn't uh, read or write for yourself, you could get someone else to do it. So you still might have access to this sort of culture uh, in a different sense. Um, but yeah, more people are reading, more people are writing um, and actually writing letters becomes essential in how people form relationships. So courtship letters became a really, really important way that people navigated their relationships in this era. And you, you, women didn't just correspond with anybody in this way. It was a really big deal. You know, if a man wrote to her and said, oh, please, can we enter into a correspondence? If she said yes, that signified that they might soon be engaged. So it, the, the letter is a really, really, really important space where people expressed intimate emotions so people are it's encouraging them to express sort of their deepest feelings this it was this sort of revelatory genre you know you couldn't be sort of very business-like in your love letters you couldn't just write anything you know the expectation was one of um sort of self-revelation and, and bonding by sort of talking about your feelings and and your character and what you help to hope to find from a spouse what you hoped to to get from marriage um and the, you know, like in this print, the sympathetic lovers is influenced by novels. So people sent novels to each other as a gift. Um, uh. the, the feminist philosopher Mary Wollstonecraft, she sent uh, the novel uh, Rousseau's Julie. It's a massive bestseller. She sent it to her suitor, William Godwin, with a note that said, uh, you know, I want you to read this so you can learn to talk about your feelings a bit more. You know, she said, I want you to give me a bird's eye view of your heart. So it's novels and it's letters. It's really encouraging and feeding this culture, this this um, uh, sort of focus on on revelation and uh, sort of talking about your feelings so openly. So they're all relying on letters. So like, how long did it take to get a letter in the seventeen hundreds and eighteen hundreds? 
post was getting much quicker. So there were several posts a day. Um, increasingly, they were going with much greater speed. You had uh, male coaches um, starting to be used. You had um, a much more reliable road network. So people knew when the post was due and they would write up to that second and knowing which post it was going into, then you could receive it the next day. Um, and even actually, if people, even if people were going to see each other the same day, they could still write a letter and drop it off by hand because I think there were things that you could write in a letter that you might not say in person. Ah, so that's when you're like, I really fancy the pants off you. Like you would say that in a letter, but you wouldn't say it in real life. Well, a man might say it in a letter. A woman would never, ever, ever put something like that in writing because it might, if anyone else got hold of the letters or if the relationship was then broken off, you know, that would, you know, irreparably damage her virtue. So it was for men to make those over the top statements of love. What about like marrying someone from a different city? What if you like were from Manchester, but you went to London for a summer to like meet your cousin or something? Like how long would that post take? But is it still like not super common to like marry someone not from your city because of just the nature of communication and stuff? Uh, people were typically from similar areas um, because, yeah, that's how you meet people. But people were traveling, you know, staying with family members in different parts of the country. Uh, but, yeah, broadly, you were courting people of your a similar geographical area, similar class status. Because you were saying like industrialization earlier is happening a lot in like, you know, late 1700s, 1800s. What does like trade and the economy have to do with this continued obsession with love? It meant that love was increasingly commercialized in the 18th century. So um, this is the period that saw the invention of the Valentine's card uh, as a commercial object. So increasingly, you could buy romantic gifts and tokens from a shop. So you didn't have to make them yourself um, uh, and you could go shopping. So the verb shopping, I'm going to go a, a shopping was coined in this period. So you could go to shops, uh, buy love tokens without having to make them yourself. And there was an increasing range of things you could buy. You know, people were sending, you know, wide collections of stuff to each other. You know, they were sending gifts like, um, you know, garters and gloves and jewellery and rings and perfume bottles um, and flowers and sweets. You know, so there's such a greater range of things that people were sending. Uh, and it led to the development of a whole economy of love, a whole economy of courtship. So capitalism has been driving this thing for a minute. So in your book, The Game of Love in Georgian England, you focus on 60 couples, which it's just so fascinating, you guys. So how did you land on these couples? And and what what's the range of lived experiences that they offer? So I travelled all across the country going to local record offices uh, and I collected uh, letters that they'd written. So typically, uh, lots more love letters survive by men. But I was trying to find collections where you've got both sides of a correspondence because um, women I think, destroyed their letters much more uh, in a much more of a dedicated way. Because if, if a relationship ended before marriage, the, the ritual was for people to burn their letters. And that's what makes it really difficult as a historian because all the ones that didn't go to plan... Um, uh, you know, you, you've got heavily redacted letters or all the best ones have been taken out and torn up and thrown away or burned. So uh, it's a lot of work, you know, rustling through the archives, trying to find all these places where people have kept their correspondence because people did keep them. You know, love, love letters were really, really, really important um, emotional artefacts. So if a relationship was going well, you know, you'd keep your letters to um, reread them and, and as a sort of memorial to a really important time in your life. So kind of like the best kept logs were the ones that you focused more time on, right? Is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah. Although, and, and also as the 18th century went on, more and more letters have survived. People mm. corresponding more, they're writing at greater length, saving their letters as, as treasured emotional objects. And then what, like, what's like the range of lived experiences of the 60 couples? Like, is any of them like super royal or any of like, like, what's like the, like the spectrum of people who you focus on? So broadly speaking, I'm looking at the, the middling sorts and the gentry. 
the middling sorts of people like, um, you know, merchants, large scale uh, shopkeepers, manufacturers, lawyers, politicians, clergymen, um, and then gentlemen and uh, gentlemen's daughters. And at the lowest level, I'm looking at people like labourers and wheelwrights. And at the absolute highest level um, is people like members of the nobility. Um, you know, for whom it was really important that they made uh, a good match with someone of the same social status with their parents' approval um, in order to ensure the continuation of, you know, of the family dynasty. Did any, like, really salacious love letters of, like, a merit or, like, a engagement gone wrong live on both sides? Like, did any lady, like, not get to the burning fast enough? Or did she, like, keep them low-key and then they came out later? Like, was it, like, what was, like, the most salacious, like, letters that you found? I found some women it just didn't go right you know they got jilted and they just but they still couldn't bear to destroy their letters so they kept them so you know and they and they never married you know so they could reread them as a sort of sad memento of a time when they they nearly made it to the altar if it all went completely com- disastrously dreadfully wrong and you're a woman say you got jilted you could sue the guy for breach of promise for damages mm. for to get money for your hurt feelings um, mm. And so in these cases for breach of promise, we people use their love letters as evidence. So we have uh, letters that were read out in court. Um, so that's another way in which this sort of evidence survives. So if you were absolutely on the precipice of matrimony and then a guy upped and left and jilted you, you could sue him for damages for your lost virtue, your lost chastity. How often were those won by the female? They were won quite regularly by women. But if a man bought it, he won a lot less because men were not seen to suffer so much when a relationship ended. Uh, It was a bit more sort of, you know, chin up and get over it. Uh, Whereas women were seen to to suffer so much more uh, because their virtue had been compromised. And also because, you know, women were seen as as physically more tender, more sensitive, more emotional. Uh, You know, uh, women were thought to feel much more than men. And why was marriage just so important in the first place? Was it because syphilis was deadly and if you were, like, too much of a hoe, you could die? Like, why were people so obsessed with it? It was so important because it was the the key building block of society. So to marry meant that you were an adult. It was a key marker of adulthood. Uh, You would marry, uh, you'd leave your parental home, upon marriage uh, you'd set up a new household a new independent economic unit um, it was the proper site uh, for, for having children um, it, it, and it was a marker of your financial independence and your maturity Ooh. okay so it's really important and then okay okay and then how did people like show their affection other than like swooning and sighing like what was like the impulse by gift of like the year to show someone that you were just like super in love with them well i'll tell you talking about impulse by there's these really i'll show you can you still see my screen can you see this yes so uh, over the 18th century increasingly there are these newly fashionable sort of, like you say sort of impulse buy type gifts things that uh, there was a new vogue for and everyone you know suddenly starts buying these things and then you know a few decades later they fall out of fashion again so between about 1780 and 1810 the thing that is all the rage is the eye miniature so this is what you've got on your screen now so it's a painting uh, that only shows someone's eye Okay, and you would wear it, uh, and you would be the only one who knew whose eye it was. So it's sort of a secret. Uh, and it, you know, even now, you know, we don't know who this eye belongs to. <laughs> but the, you know, the the goal is, you know, you have a miniature painted of your lover's eye. You could wear it on your body. So symbolically, you've got something of their body on your body. So it's bringing the two of you together, and you could gaze at it to to create and deepen feelings of love. Um, and the, the eye was particularly important because the eye was thought to be the window of the soul or the window to the heart. So you'd gaze at, you know, this painting of someone's eye that no one else necessarily knew whose eye it was uh, and sort of renew your vows. And you can see the eye here. Sometimes you get a bit of their eyebrow or a bit of their nose as well. Uh, but no, no more than that. Uh, the eye here is crying tears of diamonds. So it's probably uh, a woman's eye. And she's crying these diamond tears to show her virtue and her purity and sort of the sorrow of, of separation. 
Oh, I'm obsessed with her. Okay. So back to the letters. Like, how did they, like, build an affection or, like, how did the stakes, like, grow over time? And what's, like, the average length of a courtship in this time? So the average length of a courtship, I'd say it'd be about two years. Uh, you didn't want it to be too long because, you know, a woman had to protect her virtue in the meantime. But I mean, the longest ones I've looked at went up to about four years. And that was if a if a man, if they were separated for a long period of time. So sometimes, uh, you know, if a man's parents disapproved, they'd send him away to go on a grand tour of Europe, uh, you know, and visit museums and look at ruins and paintings and so on. And then he'd come back. And if he was still really keen on her when he got back, then all right, they could get married. Um, or if a man was, a, you know, a soldier or a sailor or so on, or was away on business for long periods of time, then it might be a little bit longer. But the average time is between two and, and four years. Did people ever, like, pers- like parallel path as to say, like, did, like, did you ever find someone who was, like, sending multiple letters to, like, different people? Oh, no, 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 you couldn't do that. So, you know, if you were if you were corresponding with someone, that meant that you were on the path to an engagement. You couldn't, you couldn't correspond with lots of people at once. And I studied one guy, actually, a poor man. He, he was writing to his friend that this woman was sort of ghosting him. And he said, well, can I have my letters back then? You know, is it over? But she wouldn't commit to keeping them or sending them back at all. So then that meant that he didn't really know whether they were courting anymore or not. So, um, you know, if you kept someone's letters and you were still corresponding with them, the expectation was that eventually you would be engaged. But if if it was all over, you had to return your letters and return your gifts to signify that that was it. And what? And she never responded? No, no. So we don't know. Um, uh, he, he, she just sort of ghosted him. What if she died? Maybe she got the Spanish flu. Or no, that was in the 1900s. Maybe she got something else. Maybe she got smallpox. We don't know. That's the thing. It was just a, a glimpse of their relationship survives in uh, uh, in his friend's diary. Because the guy's recording, you know, this poor man. He has no idea whether he's even courting this woman anymore or not. So that's really the equivalent of ghosting in the time is just like you don't respond anymore, which is really very much the same as what it is now. Yeah, but in many ways, it was easier to ghost people, you know, without social media. If you stop writing and move away, then really, who's to say where you've gone unless you're going to track people through their friends and family? What about like a catfishing incident? I mean, certainly there were uh, occasions where, you know, a woman would marry someone and you'd find out, well, the person you'd married wasn't exactly who they presented themselves as being. You know, you might find after marriage that a man had, I don't know, big debts or something that he had to, you had to pay off or that he had illegitimate children from before marriage or, or that he was a massive rake or a gambler. Uh, so certainly, uh, yeah, some wives did find out when it was too late that they'd married someone that, that wasn't exactly as they presented themselves. No. And then what would happen? Like, could you like divorce or annul? Like what happened? Like what would happen? No. So, I mean, that's that's the thing. You know, uh, what historians say is that marriage was actually pretty easy to get into, but impossible to get out of. Uh, so once you're in it, that was it. So that the divorce, full legal divorce with the possibility to remarry wasn't really viable until um, the mid 19th century. So it's the Matrimonial Causes Act. Of 1857. Was that the divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived guy? Isn't that like why they made the Church of England so he could get divorced or something? No, so that's much earlier. So this is uh, Matrimonial Causes Act. It's Queen Victoria. It's the Victorians it comes in. So it it was in the 18th century that uh, if you want to get divorced, it was more um, you would go through the church courts and have separation from bed and board. So you could separate or a man could sue to separate, but you couldn't then remarry. It was kind of sort of separation without remarriage. And if you wanted to be able to remarry, uh, that, that required an act of parliament. So you needed the support of someone in parliament and it actually had to pass as a bill. So there was an absolutely minuscule handful of people uh, who managed to, to, to get divorced in this period. Until the 1850s? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there was a it was still a small proportion of the population who got divorced then. But it was much higher than it was in the 18th century. So you can see why marriage is so important, because once you're in it, that's it. Damn, that's intense. So we were just talking about like the diary that we found of the guy who was talking about his friend whose like partner just stopped responding and he never knew if they were like really over or not. So, like, how big of a role did, like, friends play in, like, 
vetting these people or like, you know, like, cause it's so important. So like, wouldn't like your friend circle really like be trying to look out for you? Yeah. It's my, yeah. Friends had a really important role to play in uh, making suitable courtships and breaking unsuitable ones. Courtship was definitely not something that was private. It was definitely not something that took place without the knowledge or consent of your friends and parents. Uh, so I studied one guy who, um, he courted a woman for a while and then had to break it off, uh, even though they were both completely in love and completely set on marriage because his father said, you know, you absolutely can't do this. I forbid it. Uh, he was then forced to break it off. So the, what people were supposed to do was do it with the sort of support and consent of everybody. So um, people would address their love letters to a woman and they'd often talk about, you know, how brilliant her mum was in the letters on the, in the knowledge that her mum was probably going to read it. Ah, yeah, you got to like get everybody on your side, honey. Exactly, exactly. And I've got a print actually that shows it here. It's called The Love Letter and it shows two uh, fashionably dressed gentlewomen strolling in a garden. And one of them has got a love letter in her hand. So she is sort of discussing what it says with her friend, being like, well, what do you think? You know, is this a good match? Is he a good suitor? What, you know, what should I write back? It was it was collaborative. So people discussed their letters with friends. They discussed it with family. Um, and actually the men often sent their letters unsealed. So they didn't have envelopes in this period either. Envelopes were a mid-19th century thing. So you'd fold your letter up and seal it. But sometimes people sent them unsealed so that a woman's parents could read it first. So it's going through a lot of hands, a love letter. So you can see why as, as well, a lot of them don't survive because they just fell to pieces because they're being handed around so much. Ah, I love that story. Do you ever research anybody who's like a friend or a confidant, like went in and like broke up the relationship and then like they like, you know, like a cheater, cheater, pumpkin eater, and then they ended up like running off together? No, but I have read accounts of men who knew two sisters and you sort of the parents would sort of offer a sister as a potential match and they pick one sister and decide actually they preferred the other one and then go back and marry the original one uh so sort of flicking their attention between siblings uh and i yeah i studied one um the the original sister who'd been rejected died you know and they said it was you know because of her broken heart because of the the slight that she'd received so it was a serious it was a serious business getting getting jilted especially for a woman because you're you know you're virtually she was damaged your reputation was damaged uh, and you know you had such a deep capacity for feeling biologically uh, uh, so the perception of women's chasteness or whatever or like fragility as compared to a man's was meant that if she was jilted she was meant to just like wither away and be relegated to like pariah status because one guy was a dick yeah, so so women's were seen as sort of nervously more sensitive. So the nerves were a really important um, thing in terms of how people understood human bodies in this period. So women had sensitive nerves that vibrated with feeling. And you know, your nerves were so sensitive, uh, you could suffer from a nervous collapse if a man left you. Um, and really, they were granted no... Uh, sort of power over whether they died or not. You just sort of waste away. Uh, and so we see that in, um, I was talking about how important novels were. Novels like um, Samuel Richardson's Clarissa. It's one of the longest novels in the English language. I don't recommend reading it. <laughs> I think, I swear, most of it is just Clarissa dying really, 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 really slowly. So she's sort of, wa she's been seduced by a rake and then she declines and declines and droops and droops and gets weaker and weaker and her nerves a shot until she eventually dies so it's this sort of slow wasting away was there ever like strong or like a, like a, accounts of like a woman who was like jilted and then was like fuck this guy and then like went and found like an even better guy yeah so you know you could sue him for breach of promise get loads of money and damages and then you know marry someone else is there any like cute stories that you research where that happened I just love like a strong lead who has like a strong comeback story, you know? There's this one woman, she's called um, Anne Louisa Dalling, and she had been courting a man called Gilbert Sterling. Um, and so he disappeared uh, hours before their wedding. Uh, and so her brother wrote to him. He said, uh, in a moment, without a word, without a line, without a whisper in the ear of a friend to tell us any cause, within a few hours of the appointed celebration, you disappear. 
So he'd completely ghosted her. Uh, and at six weeks end, we are still left the subject of town talk and the newspapers. Uh, so you might think she'd have sort of withered away and, um, you know, fallen under the weight of her romantic pain. But actually, she did marry advantageously a few years later. So, I mean, it's interesting. You've got all these uh, wider narratives about how it could be potentially fatal for a woman and how it might destroy her her whole body physically and emotionally and mentally. But actually, you know, women who were jilted uh, could make these advantageous marriages still. You know, you weren't, it wasn't over for you forever, uh, even if culture, uh, culturally, it might tell you that, that that was the case. As we start to come out of the Georgian era and into the Victorian era, what practices do people kind of keep up and what starts to change as we get more into like the 1800s? So uh, people still found love to be an enormously influential ideal. It was still shaping people's relationships to a, a large extent. People were still exchanging letters. They were still exchanging romantic gifts, um, but they had new models to look to. There were new ideals. Um, and so a really important one was Victoria and Albert. So Queen mm. Victoria and Prince Albert, they were married in 1840 um, and they had a big white wedding. And so that is sort of the moment at which the, the white wedding dress becomes a big, uh, really important tradition. That was her first cousin, wasn't it, Albert? Yes. Yes. Fully first cousin love. I think so. Well, actually, people people marry their first cousins. It wasn't... I know, um... but fuck me. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> fuck. I mean, just, I mean, you know, for all the people that call queer people this and that, and it's like these fucking straights were marrying their goddamn first cousins. <laughs> So yeah, yeah it, was pretty, it was pretty normal in the period, you know, but yeah, to marry your first cousin. I just had to say, I felt the need to express it. So what, what else starts to change? So um, the, pro, uh, the process of commercializing love is something that is really entrenched in the 18th century. And it's in the 19th century. Again, it's the, you know, the age of mass media. Everything's becoming much more commercial. Um, you know, people are exchanging more commercial gifts. Um, and weddings are becoming a much bigger deal. You know, in the 18th century, the wedding itself was really no big deal. You know, it was it was courtship that was important and your new status as a husband and wife. But the actual wedding really was neither here nor there. But it's in the Victorian era in the 19th century that the, you know, uh, the wealthiest couples were not marrying so much by a private license anymore. But you were marrying mm. in, in public. It was the, the big the age of the big white public wedding. Mm. Um but the other really important change, like I said before, is divorce. So the marriage did become, for some people, slightly easier to get out of after the Divorce Act had passed uh, in 1857. So, I mean, with all of your research and everything that you know about the Georgian era and Georgian England, honey, what do we take away about love and courtship and, and about romance and heartbreak from this era? In my day, I think the thing I've learned from, you know, after a decade or so of studying love is that just because something is formulaic, that doesn't mean it's not real. You know, people make their relationships using the the particular cultural stories that they have available to them at a particular moment. So we still have readings at our weddings, you know, something from Captain Corelli's Mandolin or from Shakespeare, you know, these sort of broader cultural tropes that are very uh, influential. But, you know, when we apply it to our own lives, it's somehow meaningful to us. You know, we use what we have at our disposal to make and break our relationships. Like what I've learned is, you know, no one lives outside of culture. We we use the the cultural models that we have available to us to make sense of our own lives. And it's no different today uh, in that sense to how it was in the 18th century. Wow, that's really so interesting. When, uh, so connected to our past, like we're, because like wherever you go, there you are, like as people. Um, because you have, re I mean, you're a literal historian of this period. What practices do you see that we've like, that have remained from that period into today? A lot of the presents that we exchange are things that we've been exchanging since the 18th century. So things like uh, bunches of flowers, chocolates, uh, you know, we still exchange wedding rings that we wear on the, you know, the fourth finger of the left hand. You know, a lot of these practices uh, have, have a very long history. It's not the case that everything now is, you know, entirely new and different. Ah, and okay. And as we start to wrap up, 
what has been your journey as a historian of emotions? Um, and, and what would you say to, to, to people that find this really fascinating and want to do more of this research in their lives? I say, if you're interested in history of love and courtship and marriage in the 18th century, go and read uh, Francis Burney's novel, Evelina. Uh, It was a massive bestseller at the time. uh, And yet I think it's pretty little known now, you know, compared to works like Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. You know, Jane Austen read Evelina and you can see the influence that it had uh, upon her later works. Um, But to my knowledge, scandalously, I I don't think there's ever been any sort of TV adaptation of Evelina. Like it's sort of disappeared culturally from the the prominence that it had in the 18th century. So if you're interested, yeah, go read Evelina. It's a, it's a it's a great novel. Okay, Shondaland. And then final question: What's next for you and for your work? So my next project uh, is on the history of heartbreak. So my next book is looking at uh, what happened when it all went wrong. So what were the physical and emotional and social and cultural consequences uh, of unfulfilled love, uh, unrequited love uh, and the broken heart? Oh, my God, I can't wait to read that book. Dr. Sally Holloway, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We appreciate you so much. I learned so much and we got to have you back on because I think after I fully binge season two, I'm going to have more questions. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me. It's been super fun. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Sally Holloway. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and show them how to subscribe, if you please. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJVN if you want. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Z Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time on Getting Curious.